This is a podcast from Minute Media. It happens sometimes when you catch up with old friends, you get start talking and you realize, oh crap, it's four, it's 1020. Welcome to Tigers Radio Podcast here at MotorCityBangles.com and of course at the Tiger Mind Report. I'm Rahul Castillo. My name is Chris Brown. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, and Stitcher. Apologies on the quick delay or quick turnaround on some of these episodes, but I'll be honest, the during the offseason, I play it kind of loosey-goosey a little bit. But with when we get a season, of course, every episode will be dropping on Friday morning per normal. And so joining us before he heads out to Pittsburgh, as he's now currently the voice of the Titans doing that transition into baseball season, hopefully hopefully soon. Even regardless, there's still going to be minor league season. We're stoked for that. The voice of the West Michigan Whitecaps and the voice of the Road to Detroit podcast you can find on iTunes, Spotify, all the places that you can find us. Dan Hasty. Gentlemen, gosh. You know, are we still allowed to talk about baseball when there's a lockout going on? I, I'm not sure if this is okay. Is this okay? Oh, only only certain uh, baseball players, only the minor leaguers. Anybody on the 40 man, we can't uh, pretend uh, they exist. <laughs> John Dowd, everybody. There you go. <laughs> The famous slugger. Only the real ones know what that is. You've got to have a real sickness to know what that reference means. And that's why you're watching this show. Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's a reference. That voice, voice of the Titans, voice of the Whitecaps. I'd argue voice of a generation. Yeah. <laughs> a very, very small, very, very small generation. It's a niche group. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that and right now we've seen the Tigers in the last week or two pick up the minor league free agent pickups, but that's not really the big thing right now with going ahead of the season for West Michigan as it looks like the Tigers are kind of stocking up on double-A, triple-A, which is actually good for the Whitecaps considering that last year the Whitecaps had, anytime a pitcher got really good, they were immediately sent up to Erie because of the depth, but it looks like, and I think the Tigers have done a really good job of addressing the minor league depth so far this offseason. And you could, what do you, what do you think the potential rotation is going to be? Because I think it, it, you saw that this evening Jackson Joe was on 97 won the ticket. I think it was Isaac or Isaac Pachenko too, I believe as well. But this rotation in West Michigan seems to be lining up very nicely. And you know, it doesn't matter what your offense looks like if you have the best starting pitcher on any given day, you have a chance to win. I mean, you can have guys hit three home runs and you can still lose 10 to three. But if you have the best pitcher on the mound that day, you're going to have a chance to win. So for me, this kind of takes me back to some of the other West Michigan teams. I mean, 2014, they were dominant on the mound. 2017, they were dominant on the mound. And I think that's kind of what we're going to see with this particular group. And what is exciting is if it tends to look like what we saw in 14 and 17, you're going to be getting that production from prospects, not from, you know, four-year college guys who have been in the system for three years, who are nowhere to be seen in the top 30. This one matters. And it's, it now looks like, you know, the, the Tigers are – you know, in my lifetime, I've never seen the Tigers specialize in developing something at the level that they're currently developing pitching. You know, if you go to the Detroit Tigers restaurant right now, the chef's special is written on the board, 
and that's the Fetter special. It, it's pitching. I mean, look, I mean, it's 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 Fetter made, baby. And I love the fact that they are now able to take somebody that few teams want, you know, like Willie Peralta, great example last year, and turn him into something that's not only salvageable, but viable. So you're able to, if you're able to get that out of Willie Peralta, what in the world are they going to do with the Eduardo Rodriguez's of the world? So I'm very excited to see what this is going to look like, especially as they get some talent. And, and talking to some of the people with the Tigers, they said that they've got a long way to go. And to think that they made chicken salad last year, I mean, to think about what they could have when they get more time to work on developing and it goes from the top down is really exciting. One of the things about that rotation last year is that the fact that you have – Speaking of the development of pitching, who would have thought in the beginning of the year that Chavez Fernander, a 32-round draft pick out of Polk, would be going to the Arizona Fall League? Or William Flores is literally coming out of nowhere, who has the potential to be up at West Michigan. But, in Dan, this was something, and I, I was talking about this with Chris before, Bo Brisky, Garrett Hill, and it's just like, a, it was a non, again, a lot of non-names, but it, then when you saw Reese Olsen come over and trade for Milwaukee, that was where I, I think this year, to me, out of all the times I've watched a lot of the minor league pitching, it was special, and, and it looked like there was a plan coming together. Even even with the, just the, the – comparatively speaking, we've seen more of a turn on the player personnel side this in this offseason so far than we did last season. So, I mean, did you – what to see – can you remember – you just as much a historian as I am. Can you remember a time the Tigers had – a 23rd and 25th and 32nd round draft pick be that effective on the mound not that it's just not you know it, even with the numbers just the advanced numbers look really that good well and you know for for years you know and, and we all kind of had to go through you know the, the 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 pit together we all had to crawl our way out Shawshank Redemption style <laughs> to get to where it looks today and I think one of the things that I could put faith in early on when they invested as heavily into pitching as they did. Mize, Manning, Scooble was a nice surprise. Fiedo was a big draft capital investment. Was the way that baseball looked at that time, and I still think it looks that way to a point now, is if you need to buy pitching in free agency, it tends to run a little more expensive for starting pitching than it does for an equal caliber position player. I don't. I, I know that arms are fickle. I don't know why. I think that should be reversed. I think, given the issues with arm injuries that we have in today's game, I think the everyday position player who's at a significantly less risk of blowing out his arm should be the premium price tag. But for whatever reason, we don't live in that situation. We don't live in that economy. So. The way the Tigers built then, knowing that they were investing into pitching, told me, okay, if this hits, they've got pitching, then they can allocate the financial side and free agency to offensive players. That is the way this could come together. And back then, it was almost like a pipe dream. It felt so far away three, four years ago. You know, we started the Road to Detroit podcast, and <laughs> I was even joking after the first couple of weeks of the seasons, and I was, I was going how are we going to sell this? Like, how are we going to do this? And and then what we saw in 2021, we saw what AJ Hinch did after that slow start. 
and gave us a legitimate future. We got names. We now know what this can look like. And look, I don't know exactly what fan graphs or, or the different baseball publications projected the Tigers to have as a record last year. You guys probably know this, but you know, I would assume it was probably somewhere in the 60s, maybe the 70s if they were feeling generous. But you know, let's say that they outdid those expectations by somewhere between seven and 10 games. I mean, I honestly thought that their their manager did one of the best jobs in baseball last year. So if they overachieved at that level last year and they're able to overachieve to that same level this coming season, I saw they were projected, I think, to win 75 or 76 games. Now you're talking about an over 500 team. And if you're playing a little over 500 come, say, I don't know, July 31st, and say you've got a few more playoff teams because of a new updated collective bargaining agreement, I think all of a sudden we could be talking about a possible run. And I don't know what that run leads us to. I don't know if that's a one-game playoff. I don't know if it's more than that. In 2006, I was just happy to get into the playoffs, right? So you just never know. And I think now we have a group in place that needs to be the priority. First of all, keeping them in place, but seeing what they're capable of doing they can do a lot with a little. And the fact that they've already gotten a couple of the best free agents in baseball, I, I trust what they can do getting free agents. You know, I, I, I'm a Robbie Grossman stan. I don't know if you guys have figured that out by now, but I, I'm a Robbie Grossman stan. And I, I put on Twitter today, essentially, just that he was one of the best free agent bargains, just free agent signings of last year. And I think he had like a, a three war, just a shade under three. And I was like, which Tigers free agent signing posted that high of a war in their first year? You know how far I had to go back? I had to go back to 2012. Prince Fielder was literally the last free agent signing to post a plus three war his first year after signing. It's been a long time. Now you're wow. telling me that they're able to develop the pitching and now they start to show that they can get value on the free agent market. You know, this, this I can't believe we signed Javi Baez. This dude was on the cover of a video game two years ago and everybody's just like, meh. What are we talking about? <laughs> Javier Baez. Like, come on. Like, I mean, look, I, I get it. He's not Carlos Correa. Sorry. I mean, you, you, who knows? He's still out there, right? But my point is, is that they are showing us something that we've never seen before. And that's an ability to identify future production. Yeah, to, to your point, one thing I noticed today, and I, I didn't post this uh, a lot because I didn't, you know, want to be uh, negative toward a kid but uh, uh tennessee baseball has been tweeting out uh, you know how many days till the season begins and today they were tweeting about austin simcox and their their uh, stat about him was how he in one year he had 11 sacrifice bunts and then finished his t vols career with like 35 sacrifice bunts <laughs> and uh, to me that said way more than it should have because uh, and again, I don't want to denigrate the kid, but the Tigers spent $600,000 on A.J. Simcox in the 14th round back in the 2015 draft because uh, it, it was one of those things where they had drafted, uh, I forgot his name, Terry Shumpert's kid. They drafted him in the seventh round, and then he didn't sign. And so they, they had this money that they either, you know, use it or lose it. So they used it on AJ Simcox, who had a, you know, a solid organizational career for the Tigers. I think he was in the org for like five years, but, but that just doesn't seem like the sort of player they'd be targeting these days. 
a, a just, just a man like make that your life goal like just to be the person who's available for when the team wants to pay half a million dollars to somebody they're like i don't know who didn't we not sign yet oh is it uh simcox all right uh, get him on the phone <laughs> can you imagine yeah well, and then you he, still- he would have signed for 10 grand <laughs> <laughs> well you still see that the teams that they forget to do that the mets didn't do that this year or last year i guess they didn't take anybody they could get extra money to. And then when they didn't sign Kumar Rocker, the money just went away because they didn't have anybody else. To, yeah. So it was, I don't know. It's not like cell phone minutes. They don't yeah. roll over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just like timeouts. Ah, yes. that a boy. Well and done. That's yeah. Well played, Chris. And that's where you, you kind of see again, even with uh, one of the, one of the starts in Terry Scooble last year, Terry Scooble was a guy who, Broke some organizational records last year in terms of rookies for strikeouts. He did a lot of 35 home runs, granted. But again, it's still, this is a guy that was drafted in the ninth round. And I, and Dan, this might be a name. I'll throw it back to you. Maybe you may, I've, I've thrown this name around quite a bit. So you remember the great Scott Eldred? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I used to get him confused with Cal Eldred all the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, Scott Eldred. Yeah. It, it, it's been a minute, but yeah, of course. That was the last left hander. That started that the Tigers drafted beyond the first five rounds of the draft, and he was drafted. I, I want to say, I used to know this off the top of my head, but he was the last Tiger to make a start in that. And then you had the Kurt Knutson too, right? Chris was that. What was that stat you pulled up? That was a good one too. Oh boy, that was the because we were talking about Bo Brisky, like you mentioned, these late round pitchers. We were looking for a pitcher who made multiple starts or like five starts in the big leagues after being drafted in the, I don't know, 20th round or later. And you had to go back to 1987 or 1989, I think, to find somebody who had done that. And, and it, it certainly looks like Bo Brisky's got a good chance to, you know, stop that streak as it were. So yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely, things definitely feel better. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Dan, where a lot of it, it, it kind of trickled down last year from the big leagues where you saw this progress. And then as we kept following the minors all year long, we're like, Oh boy, you know, not just Spencer Torkelson and Riley green, but Ryan Kreidler from out of nowhere and Bo Brisky from out of nowhere. And and suddenly like, Hey, this team can develop players for the first time that we can remember. I I mean, and and think about it now, now now you can go sign a Javier Baez and guess what? If anything happens to him, you've got a viable replacement. I've been trying to tell Lynn Henning about this over and over, and he just won't listen. He just won't listen. <laughs> you need major league players to help grow future major league players. Get him in here. Well, and Lynn did just uh, write an article. I didn't see it because I don't have access, but he wrote an article about how the, the depth in the farm system should be better than uh, in a long time this year. So, Well, you I mentioned said- it too. You already talked about like signing the guys who are going to play at double-A and triple-A and you know, yeah, it probably pushes guys down to West Michigan now more than ever has because West Michigan being a high A affiliate, but it also gives some of the prospects a little bit more time to grow. I think about a guy like Gage Workman, and I'll tell you this, he was one of my favorites to watch last year. I think, you know, and, and it's appropriate now because there's so many LA Dodgers influencers now in this Tiger system. But every time I watched him, my, all I could say was he's a Los Angeles Dodgers prospect that somehow ended up in the Tigers system. He just he hits the tar out of the baseball. 
He can play defensively. He strikes out a lot. He can run. He's got that power-speed combo that you see loaded up in farm systems like L.A., like Tampa. We're talking about some of the premier farm systems, and I truly hope that that continues to be and not, not just an expectation, but almost a requirement for the skill sets that they continue to bring in amongst position players. And one of the, I remember last year when we went to the game and he made that play from shortstop and Lansing and Dan, your call. I mean, I was, I was be, I was in the, Chris was in well, the what booth about Chris's you. call though. I got to find the audio. Wow. <laughs> I was going to say, I got to find the audio and put it in the show introduction. But, CB really sold it that night. Yeah, but I hear Dan. So Jesse's booth is right next to Jesse uh, Goldsman, the the voice of the Lansing Lugnuts. And I hear your voice, Dan. I mean, like, you're just, like, stu- like stunned. And it was a thing where Workman is moving to a new position. This is the first time he's playing a new position like this. And then there was a, uh, there was a home run call, too, you had, where you see him drop his hands, balls coming in, Right on the left or right, yeah, drops right near his knees on the left hand in the left corner and just drops boom. And biggest one of the longest home runs you've seen in September and in, in West Michigan history. I, I, you were telling Chris about that to me, out of from seeing him from Lakeland where he just kind of had the jitters, but he's still hitting with everywhere to the end of the season. It was a to have an infielder prospect like that. I haven't seen like that in quite a long time in a recently drafted player like Workman. Look, I am not a professional talent evaluator, and nor will I ever pretend to be one. But what I can tell you is what matters to me, having watched now hundreds of people come through West Michigan, is what's your range of outcomes? When you hit a baseball in a game, how far can it go? When you have a ground ball to your position, What's the best play you can make? Because now I know what you're capable of. Gage Workman is the guy who can make a stunning defensive play. Gage Workman is the guy that can hit a ball 450 feet. I know that's in the package. So to me, that's what makes Gage Workman really compelling. That's why, to me, you know, the Tigers are going to graduate Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green hopefully within the next couple of months from their prospect status, right? And I think if you're looking for that next tier, that next wave, you know, obviously Dylan Dingler is somebody that you hope is in there as well. But I think Gage Workman works his way in there. And even if they don't cut down on the strikeouts, I do not care. Swing hard in case you hit it. This is the time, day, and age that we live in. Hit balls far. Pedro Serrano style. That's Gage Workman. Yeah, look at this drop. When you drop, like we're watching here on YouTube. Look at this, the way he dropped his hand on that one right there. It's crazy. Just a crazy, just crushing it. So, yeah, I mean, I think the play in Lansing, the defensive play was probably the best individual defensive play I saw all year, at least in person. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some, you know, good stuff, at least in the minors. And the home run, I think, Roger, you're talking about was at LMCU. Uh, and, and it, I don't know if it cleared or landed on the party porch out there, but it was just a monster blast. And it's like, to your point, Dan, yeah, like this is a guy who's got those tools in there. And the one thing I always try to point out is, is he was among the minor league leaders in doubles this year. Like he was second or third. And the, the old adage is that, uh, you know, as you get bigger and stronger, those doubles start turning into home runs. And we see that a lot of times, too, when when guys actually move from 
the spacious parks in low A and high A and move into the, the you know double A and triple A where the parks are a little bit more reasonable. So it wouldn't shock me if if Workman, I don't know if he's going to start in double A, but if he's in double A this year and hits like 15 home runs there because he's got the power and uh, yeah, the ability. So you know what doubles turn into at Comerica Park? Triples. Triples, yeah. Well, and he can run. That's a valuable tool. And again, he's got enough juice on the base paths to where he can turn a double into a triple, where he has that ability. And again, complete baseball player. Like, th- this is what I've been just aching to see as the archetype for Tigers prospect. You know, they they didn't have this for years on years on years. Like, you know, when, when Dave Dombrowski was in charge, you know, they're, essentially the, the draft was a tool for them to go use those particular draft picks to trade away to help the major league club. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I know that my boss wants me to take a guy who I know is going to dominate low A, I'm probably going to take a much more finished product with a much lower ceiling than I am going to take a guy that has room for projection. And, and that's, was, that was the mode of operation for many, many years. It's different now. You know, speaking of what's different is we've – so we've had Jeff Ponis over from Baseball America on. We've had Kevin Goldstein from – fan graphs and one pitcher has come up each and every single time. And I'm not sure if you prefer anything on your end and it's just becoming a thing where it's almost like, a I want to say a running, it's become a running thing on the podcast since the winter, since December. And that is Tanner Colheap, who both Jeff and, and Kevin both spoke really highly of, and they were just saying how this guy's going to don't sleep on this guy. And, Dan, have you have any intel on him? Because I know he he went to buy he went by or he went to Notre Dame, which is not too far. I don't, you know, it's a little not too bad drive from Grand Rapids, but just he everyone keeps talking about him. So do, have you seen him pitch or have you heard anything? And they just is he a potential have a chance to pitch out of the bullpen at West Michigan to begin the season? Yeah. So I mean, essentially was was a reliever at Notre Dame. Um, misses a ton of bats, ton of bats. Uh, super high spin rate is, I think, a safe bet. I have not seen those analytics on him yet. Um, I, I can't wait because I know the type of player that the Tigers are now looking for. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised even in the slightest. I mean, heck, their, their 30th round picks are, are spinning sliders at 3,000 RPMs now, right? So uh, I really like that they took a guy like this, um, whether he's a closer. I mean, he's he's polished enough to where he could probably go to West Michigan right out of the box. And it's so different now. I think last year really changed the dynamics of the minor league ladder because we used to say, okay, draft pick, well, congratulations, you're going to the Gulf Coast League. Like, really? Like, does a four-year college kid need to go to the GCL? No. So now – you know, we saw Spencer Torkelson, we saw Dylan Dingler, we saw Trey Cruz. I mean, we saw Daniel Cabrera without a lick of professional experience go right to West Mish. And I know that it would have probably happened differently had we not been in a unique situation because of the agreements with major and minor league baseball. But I think it just simply showed that 
you don't need all those levels. You don't need, if a guy's good, a guy's good. You don't need to mess around and send them to nine different stops. So, you know, whether it's Jackson Job, and I think it'd be aggressive to send him to West Michigan, but I would love to see it. If, if they think he's good enough, I trust them at this point with pitching. We can get into that in a minute. But whether it's Job or Madden or Dylan Smith, I think it's been proven here now that you don't need to be afraid to send a guy aggressively through your system. Uh, yeah, and we trust that if Jackson Job does get called up to West Michigan at some point, we'll get a cryptic tweet and uh, maybe a picture of the city of Jackson, Michigan, and that will let us know <laughs> that we need to start driving. Uh, the bat, bat signal out there. Yeah. But um, yeah, if you ever see me tweet that uh, scene from "I Love You, Man," where uh, you know, Paul Rudd just butchers the nickname, he's like, "You got it, Jobin." If you ever see me tweet that with no other comments necessary. Just know that that's the bad signal. Can we all just understand I, each other? Yeah. So, so one thing, we actually had a couple of questions, uh, people asking who you think is going to be there in West Michigan this year. But you, you, you kind of mentioned earlier about this could be a, a pitching rotation or staff that, that rivals 2014 into 2017. So just for people who might not be super familiar, I'm going to run down some of the names from those 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 teams. And the 2014 team had basically every draft pick from the 2013 draft. So you had Kevin Zomek, Austin Kubica, Chad Green, Buck Farmer, Jonathan Crawford. But just counting the major leaguers, you got Green, Farmer. I think Joe Mantiply made it, or Mantiply eventually made it to the majors. Yeah. Zach Reininger, Artie Loki, uh, and uh, I think that's it from that year's class. But the Think about all those names, too. All these guys who can go dominate low A, but you can flip away in a trade. And yeah. that's exactly what they were trying to do at that point in time. They were competing up through 2016. And that was that was how the Tigers were constructed. And now they don't have guys quite like that anymore. They have talented guys. Don't get me wrong. But they don't have guys who you just think, well, you know, hopefully we'll do well at low A and then we'll see what happens. Like I have expectations for these guys now more than I used to. Yeah, it, I was uh, the, the 2017 team, which I don't I don't remember as well or as as famously as the 2014 rotation, but it had more big leaguers on there, eventual big leaguers. Anthony Castro, Gregory Soto, Spencer Watkins made the majors last year. Hal Funkhauser was there for seven starts. Matt Manning for five. Locke St. John made the majors. Brandon Sittinger made the majors. Ryan Garcia, Jason Foley, Eduardo Jimenez, John Schreiber. That's a lot of future big leaguers for a low A team. And now you're in high A, so. Uh, and there are you're a lot lucky of options. to get five. That's the usual going rate. You're lucky over the course of a full season, and guys change in and out, to get five big leaguers, guys who will be there at any point. You just named off, what, 16, 17 different guys? I mean, it's just – it's absurd. Yeah, and it, it and it appears, as you mentioned, that this year's group, just based on who the Tigers drafted last year and some of the – pitchers that, that showed signs at the beginning of last year as well that this year could compete and so that was a couple of questions we got we got one from michael meyer kaiser 343 he said ask dan his thoughts on who starts in west michigan for 2022 does he see any surprises and then Gosh. west michigan tigers fan at cool guy burner uh he said who starts the 2022 in the west michigan rotation plenty of options like madden dylan smith cole hep montero will hell hernandez jack o'laughlin wilmer flores and more so yeah he wants these guys want to know who you think is going to be there also yeah. he likes the uh i like the john valenti question too or guy or maybe someone that paid more attention to you oh which... don't worry don't worry there's always time for johnny valenti uh so <laughs> 
you're talking about who starts in West Michigan. I mean, if, if we're talking about the rotation, I mean, and this is why it's so exciting is that not only do they have guys that are compelling, but they have many of them. I mean, it's not just for people like us. I mean, you know, we're going to get to a point at some time during this summer where the rotation could conceivably have the Tigers first, second, third, fourth round draft pick in its rotation as its rotation. And then on top of that, you know, you've got the, the Wilmer Floreses of the world who I know they are extremely excited about. Um, I would expect another year for Cater Montero. Uh, Cater Montero was very, very young to be in high A again, another guy who skipped low A altogether going to going back to 2021. So I think Montero will repeat the level at least to start the year. Um, I really like Jack O'Loughlin. I, I think there's something there. Um, I didn't see enough to be completely convicted on that, but really, really smart kid, really gets it, um, knows his limitations, and understands that he needs to outthink a lot of guys. Um, but I think there's still some projection there because he was still coming off of, of Tommy John surgery a couple of years back. So you know, you slowly work your way back in situations like his. So I like O'Loughlin. I was reading Lynn Henning's article, and he talked about Wilkel Hernandez, who is pretty easy to, uh, to to have forgotten just because we hadn't seen him last year. And he was convinced that Hernandez would be a reliever. Uh, I tend to agree with that. I think after you go through something like a major you know, operation like Tommy John, Sometimes they try to take a little bit more off the elbow and, and, and maybe just focus on short spurts as opposed to getting them back in. And maybe that's one of the reasons he had to get it. Maybe they realize, hey, you know what, maybe the starting is not for him. And, and I've seen enough Will Kell to know that his first inning or two always looked great. It's when he started to allow guys to get on base, things would snowball against him. So you know, there's more development that needs to happen there. He's not going to come into clean innings all day as a reliever. He's going to have to come in and get big outs in tough spots. So, you know, there's projection that needs to happen there. But I think those are the guys that you probably start with. But, yeah, Cole, Cole Hep will probably be a closer. I could easily see that. And then Flores, Madden, Job. I mean, it's a fun it's a fun setup. But O'Loughlin for me, I mean, I just I saw enough to be excited about him next year. Yeah, and I bring up on the screen here for everybody who's watching on YouTube, and we'll, we'll put the YouTube link in here tomorrow. His look at his curve, his curveball percentage, his whip percentage is fifty four percent, which stands out because you were talking about how he had to think people, Dan. You set up people, you set up a batter with a fastball with a changeup, but that curveball percentage, I mean, that that stands out. And <laughs> this is a guy coming off surgery, so these numbers here are going to get better, but. If, if you're referring to his curveball, that it, it was something that I saw at Lakeland a bit, and you gotta be you gotta be encouraged with this here. You know, I, I usually see this profile with like straight junk ballers or like guys who are lucky to top 90, and he can he can top that. I mean, he can he can get it to 92, 93. I mean, I I know he has. I I know we didn't see it a whole lot, but do we have? I'm trying to see. So you okay, Max Velo. 93 on a sinker, 92 on his four-seamer, which he's throwing a, a breaking ball 89% of the time. So, yeah, I, I mean, look, 
if you can still hum it in there at 92, 93 miles per hour, and I think he can probably add a little bit more as he continues to get stronger and he rehabs. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who who is thinking at a higher level than he's going to be playing at this year. And one of the things that, that I've, I'm kind of interested in seeing, and this will, you know, it all play out the way it plays out. But back in that 2014 class, you, you know, they had Chad Green made the rotation and he was like an 11th round pick. And I remember back then I was working at Tigestown. I don't think we ranked him in our top 50 once. He was just like, oh, he's just a guy. And, he, you know, he's been the most successful player from that draft. And we look at, at the guys the Tigers drafted in the top five rounds last year. You mentioned Madison Smith, uh, Madden Job, but they're also, they took three other arms in the, like, you know, eight, ninth, 10th round and, and Brant Herter and was it Garrett Burhan from Ohio state and that Jordan Marks, I think from, was it uh, Alabama some, or no, it was a Carolina upstate or something like that. It wouldn't shock me if one of those guys ends up in the rotation and ends up being better than somebody they ta- drafted higher. It's, you know, they, they, they gave themselves a bunch of bullets. Who's the who's the like seven foot three hundred fifty pound pitcher that they took? Like is it RJ Pettit. Is it RJ Pettit. It's RJ Pettit. That's yeah. right. He finished the season with West Michigan. I yeah. I was very excited about him. I I, I just want to see a dude that big throw baseballs. So yeah, I mean it's 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 a fun group, and you know you just mentioned all that depth, and that's why that matters is because as the season progresses. Sometimes when, you know, look, look at last year, you started with Spencer Torkelson and Dylan Dangler. And then once those two guys walked out the door, you know, we kind of felt like Will Smith in the middle of that living room, just looking around. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that now this year you, you get Job, you get Madden. And, and if they look like what we expect them to look like, they're probably not there that long. Maybe they don't even last half a season. I mean, Spencer Torkelson went from, being having no professional baseball experience to within a hundred games playing in triple a so i know he's a special case but they're clearly showing they're not afraid to move guys so when they do move the jobs and the maddens of the world what's going to be interesting and and you just named some of the guys that are going to be that guy like we had to think about what what is gage workman going to look like he's not going to start the season with us but you know he'll probably be there at the end so we kind of want to see what the end looks like just as much as the beginning yeah, and there's one name, too, that comes up on that draft last year that did perform well in rookie ball and ended up going to Lakeland for a while, and that was the 12th-round draft pick out of Duke and catcher Mike Roddenberg. Did I say that correctly? Hopefully I did. You did. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so for me, I see him being the full-time catcher at West Michigan because just based off his offensive profile, he already there was already reviews about him being a good clubhouse guy and being kind of a leader for a staff last year. Lakeland, I mean, Lakeland went through – it seemed like everybody underneath the sun, the pitch, and he, he stepped in right away after the draft, was able to hit 280. I mean, again, small sample size, of course, in 24 games, but 263 uh, OP, or with an OPS of 768. Hey, you know, this is a guy who was able to get 14 walks and 17 strikeouts. I'll take that any day of the week. Look, nobody's putting me in charge of running the baseball team, and that's a good idea. <laughs> but – I, I can say this, if if I'm putting together my ideal type of lineup, of, of fielding the kind of team I want, I do not care about offense from the catching position. I think it is completely unnecessary. If you do have a guy who can pop a ball over the fence and hit you 190 to 200, great. That's, that, that's awesome. What the Tigers got from Eric Haas last season was just, 
absurd about how rare it was. People don't understand. We don't appreciate what Ericos did last year. I digress. What you need at every level is a guy who can be the backbone of your pitching staff. That is so much more important than hitting a couple extra home runs every year. It's why Wilson Ramos was leading Major League Baseball in home runs after two weeks and then was DFA'd four weeks later. It just goes to show that you need somebody who can block every ball with every pitcher he has, can steal you strikes, can control the run game. That, to me, is a pitch in and pitch out. Every single moment of a game goes through how apt your catcher is defensively. So for me, give me the best defensive catcher I can possibly find. I do not care what he does offensively. Yes. Yeah, so, so in my mind, I would picture them wanting Cooper Johnson to work with all those young pitchers next year. <laughs> Cooper Johnson. Now, yeah, I mean, Cooper Johnson, we joked before, he's uh, one of the most agile uh catchers I've ever seen behind the plate. He's just slipping and sliding all over the place like he's on ice. But uh, yeah, great receiver. But I could see, see Rothenberg is an interesting guy because as I remember you know, him coming out of the draft, there was there were some questions about his like flexibility and he's a bigger dude. I could see him catching like 30, 40% of the time and also playing a, a fair amount of first base just because he's got, he's a switch hitter. He's got some pop, you know, get him in the lineup, get him some at bats while also getting him some catching to see if it'll, it'll stick. But that's just uh, me spitballing right now. Yeah. I mean, any catcher that can provide offense to me is a white whale because there's just so few of them. They're just not spotted very often. I mean, we're you know, right now the, the prospect rankings are, are coming out just about everywhere and everyone and their brother has Adley Rutschman as the number one consensus prospect. But how many times has a catcher led his team, let alone Major League Baseball in any particular offensive category? It's really hard. Managers don't go to their catcher and say, hey, I hope you go three for four today with two bombs. It's like, no, like I hope you help our pitcher catch seven innings of one-run ball and strike out nine. Like that, That's what managers care about. And as their progression develops, they don't care nearly as much about what they're doing offensively because they know that they can impact the game defensively a million times more. So for me, I don't think Adley Rutschman, and we already saw this many years ago with a guy named Matt Wieters, is that – yeah, I mean, he might be good defensively, but we're putting a lot of stock into a bat for a kid who's going to be under the physical punishment of playing the catcher position. We saw with Alex Avila many, many years ago is that it's hard to maintain an elite level of offensive production when you're behind the plate getting, getting balls in the dirt, getting bruises on your chest, getting foul tips off the face mask day in and day out. I don't think it's fair to Ali Rutschman to expect him to be a 30 and 100 guy when that's the position they have him at. Joe Maurer was rarely that. I mean, he was good. Don't get me wrong. But for every one Joe Maurer, there's, you know, 500. <laughs> I don't want to say a guy's name that I'm going to regret here, but you get what I'm saying. I mean, you can, you can, you can see Raul Casanova. Um, you can Ooh. say there's, there's a, there's a name that's a sore spot with some people, but, more importantly, I look at something like 
I look at Buster Posey, who had a severe injury, was able to come back, and then he goes, you know what? I'm good, because he knew full well the guy was a warrior behind the plate. He was cerebral, he understood the game, and he was able to, to provide that rare punch. Now, I mean, it wasn't a big power. Did he get 30 home runs? I'm trying to remember if he... I think Posey hit 30 once, probably in the year he hit one MVP. Yeah, but he, but he was consistent, but... That after that injury he had, where I mean, it was it was bad, and he couldn't obviously no DH in the in the NL, and so he decided to call it a day, and that's that says something about the catching position, especially for the for the Tigers too. Who, if you think about all the great Tiger catchers, Lance Parrish was a power hitter. Yeah, Matt Noakes in his rookie season where he won most won Rookie of the Year, Mickey Talton, then Pudge when he signed with the Tigers. We've been, and look at and even go back further, Bill Freehan. Tiger fans are spoiled with catchers. If you think about it, and you know I'm and you know I'm right about this because we're always we're looking for the next Mickey Talton and his swing. We're looking for the next Matt Noakes. I mean, Eric Costa's season last year was eerily similar to Matt Noakes. He was almost on pace to break his rookie home run record. So, I mean, and if you want to go back in further for the old timers out there, because Chris and I were talking about this earlier. Yes, Charlie Granger, yeah, or the mechanical man. Yes, he was a great catcher too. Or was it was it Mickey Cochran? I'm Mickey, sorry, Cochran. Mickey Cochran. Yeah, yeah Mickey Cracker. Mickey Mickey Cochran. Yes. Sorry, folks. Before I forget, you yell that. Or if you want me to make a Ray Boone reference, fine too. But anyway. So uh, to, to that point, Buster Posey topped out at 24 home runs uh, in his MVP season, but he hit okay. 336. But you know, to, to Dan's point, I, there's so much to catching that's that's not measurable, and they've done a better job of of measuring, you know, catching framing and stuff like that. But so much of it is about their relationship with the pitchers and how comfortable the pitchers feel. And that's why you like Salvador Perez doesn't ever grade out very well on defense, but pitchers love throwing to him and he hit 40, whatever home runs last year. Like he provides a lot of value. And I was just thinking, you know, you got a manager there in West Michigan who spent 11 years in the big leagues uh, while hitting 260 with 23 home runs in his career, but he stuck around forever because he was a good catcher. There, there's a premium on it. And to, to Roger, to your point, I mean, yeah, we're spoiled. In, in this town, this fan base, as it pertains to catchers, I mean, look, there's a reason that, you know, your mom's favorite player is a catcher on the Tigers. Because <laughs> at least it wasn't my house. It was Mickey Tunnelton. It was Brandon Andrew. You, anyway, I digress. But, I, I mean, it's it's something that we always have. The Tigers have always had it, and, and they've always had it in a strong way. Um, you know, in in today's economics, you can't necessarily – I mean, Jim Leland said this too. You can't have an all-star at every position, right? So you have to find ways to combine multiple players into your position. So what did the Tigers do at catcher last season offensively? And this is why they won 75, 76 games last year, is because they – got so much offense from that position. I think from their catching position, they got upwards of 40 homers. I, I would I would venture to guess that other than maybe Kansas City, to your point about Sal Perez, I don't know many teams that got 40 home runs from their catching position last year. I mean, Salvador Perez, I mean, we were talking about Johnny Bench when he was doing what he did. Think about how far back that goes. So, you know, to, to that point, no, I, I think, you know, Adley Rutschman, if he does what Buster Posey did, He'll be a huge success, but because he's the number one prospect in baseball, because he was a number one overall pick, 
he is very, very much set up to fail. Yeah, we had a question in there, by the way, in our YouTube chat from Troy. We did mention Pudge, by the way, in, in during the conversation. And we're talking about the kind of catchers in the past, but Troy asked this question. Is Barnhart and Haas the best catching duel in baseball? You definitely get a little bit of both. Chris, what do you have? Uh, you know, I, I have to. I would have to go through and think about all the best catchers in baseball <laughs> that would sprung up on me. I would say probably not. We don't. For as good as Haas was last year, he cooled off a little bit. I think once you know teams figured out how to pitch to him a little bit more. I think. I do think it's an ideal platoon situation where Barnhart gets right-handed pitching and then Haas gets in there and gets to mash lefties. Uh, but. Yeah, I'd have to go through and look, but but uh, yeah, I was just looking to what you said, Dan. Yeah, Kansas City led baseball with 49 home runs from catchers last year. The Tigers were second with 41. And that was like with random explosions from Dustin Garneau and Jake Rogers was hitting well before he went down with an injury. And, and like you said, Ramos was hitting for power. So yeah, I'd have to look. It's hard, hard for me to think about who top catchers in baseball are right now. I would venture to say this. I would say that last year, the Tigers probably had the highest war, lowest budget catching platoon in baseball. Yeah, and absolutely. that's so important. I mean, you have to find it. You have to find it. You know, we were just talking about Robbie Grossman, right? And so we talked about how great he was. But if you mix together what Eric Haas did with what Jake Rogers did, with what Wilson Ramos did for a couple of weeks and what Dustin Garneau did, I mean, you combine that together, you've got a really great ball player. I don't know what that combines to look like, but I would guess that it is so much more valuable than what they were paying for those four players. And, and the fact, too, that the Tigers could are building up minor league catch, catching depth, too, where you look at Diggler last year, kind of you could tell maybe he was playing hurt a little bit. We got the Erie. So there's a lot to that. And um, you, you, you hope that. And Troy brings up a good point that he hope he can replicate that and totally feasible. And it's just, that's where it's, it's nice to see that, but then addressing the backup catching concerns so that maybe he's not putting so much pressure on Dingler. And one last question in terms of catcher Alfonso last year started the season, West Michigan, he struggled went down the Lakeland came back night and day. And when we saw him early on in the season behind the plate, teams were running all over him. As I recall, Dan, and when he got back, he seemed like he was a much different player. Brian Pena was more intrigued by Elias or Alfonso than almost any player he had. And it's probably because of his catching background. But Alfonso, I mean, switching catchers are hard to find. Good switching, you know, catchers are even harder. But as the season progressed with Alfonso, the one thing he always could do was make contact. And I always love that ability. I know that you want hard contact in today's game, but again, it's the catcher position. So I treat that a little bit different from an offensive profile than I say would for a shortstop or for a third baseman for a catcher. Yeah. If I don't expect a lot of offense from you, if you can be a guy who doesn't strike out that much. And if I have a guy on third with nobody out with one out and you can put the ball in play to get him home, that to me is valuable. That is the kind of stuff that I need from a position I don't prioritize the offense. So Alfonso wasn't doing much of, of anything in terms of driving the baseball, but he was putting it in play and he couldn't hit a home run to save his life. Then he goes down to Lakeland. He finds that ability, 
comes back to West Michigan. And again, it just wasn't there for him in the power standpoint. I think he did hit a homer in his last at bat of the year off of uh, shortstop who was in there pitching, but he was hitting the tar out of balls. When he came back, he was hitting them to the gaps. He was hitting them down the lines. He came back with much more authority as an offensive player. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, offense, defensively, he was rough around the edges. He had, a hard, he had a hard year from a defensive standpoint. So I don't know what that means for him long term. But I'm excited whenever I watch somebody come back and show that they figured something out. I would expect him to start next season in West Michigan. Him and Rothenberg would be my guess. All right, Chris, was there anything else you wanted to? No, just Alfonso is one of those those rare, interesting cases where we don't care about offense from a catcher, but he's a guy who probably can't really play anywhere else. Like uh, he's he's shorter, he's not going to be a great first baseman, but there's just enough potential as a catcher that like you stick around with him for a couple of years. And as Dan said, he, he has some of the better at bats in the entire system. He's just got great bat control and can put the bat on the ball and, and has a good eye. So it's like, it's like, well, this, this is a situation where the guy's offensive ability is interesting enough to keep him at catcher because there's nothing else to do with him. And, and he's still young. I think he's, but it might be 23 now. He's young enough to continue giving the opportunity to, I, yeah. I, I think he might be younger than that, but you know, he's he had a knack to get on base. He had a knack to drive the ball towards the end of his time. Um, the catching position's hard. I mean, it is really, really hard to learn the nuances of that game at that position. I mean, there's a reason that catchers become managers because they have to think out the game in its totality as opposed to a first baseman who just has to look and go, oh, there's a ground ball. I probably should go cover the back. Like, I mean, it's it's very different skill set. You have to be responsible for so much back there. It's overwhelming. And for somebody like Alfonso, who didn't have a lot of experience past, you know, rookie ball, to come to high A as well, that's a big adjustment. So, you know, there's a reason catchers usually take a longer time to develop. Jake Rogers was the same way too. It took him a long time to make the major leagues because – there's a lot of nuance that comes along with it. So, yeah, he's absolutely worth being patient on. Yeah, I just, looked, that, he's, I just looked, he's oh, 22. He's 22, that's it? Wow. That is, for whatever reason, I thought he was a little older than that. So, all right, Dan, before we let you go. Uh, are we, we done? Go. We're not, we're we're not, go. not okay. finished, right? All right, we'll keep going. All right, we can keep going. We can do late night with uh, – late night – Late night with Hasty. I, uh, my, my, my daughter's she she's she's asleep, so I uh, yeah. I don't really have anything to worry about. Oh, here. Okay. <laughs> she's knocked out. Okay. Yeah, she's uh, she's listening to the podcast, so she's uh. <laughs> uh, we know you had a road trip, so I didn't want to take up too much of your time, but we we could definitely do. Um, Chris, was there anything else you want to hit on? Because I could definitely. We did. There were a couple other questions. I don't know yes. if we want to uh, yeah. post them. Yeah, keep going those through there. That's my that's my fault. Do you want me to go ahead and uh, share them again? Bring the oh, question. I, Let's go. So, uh, yeah, cool guy burner again. He said the white cap most likely to put themselves back on the prospect map in 2022 between Trey Cruz, Winslow Perez and Parker Meadows. Mm. So for me, I want to say, I want it to be Parker Meadows for the record. I want it to be Meadows because you know, they, they invested a lot in him. He is, you know, he's somebody that they thought a lot of all those years ago. And, and it's crazy because when you make this flip from low to high A, 
guys are seemingly with your team for what feels like an eternity. I mean, we've had guys for four, five seasons, right? And I would assume, and I could be wrong, but I think Parker Meadows will probably come back to West Michigan to start 2022, which would be his fourth season in West Michigan, albeit two of those were low A, two of them are now high A. So, you know, we've done nothing but seen his growing pains. <laughs> we've seen just him have to go through the absolute ringer. So if it's gonna if it's gonna click, and, and yeah, I will say he puts a lot of time in. He puts a lot of time in the weight room. He puts a lot of time in to his physical development. Um, you know, he's turning in to the guy I think the Tigers thought he would turn into physically, but you know, you know, be, being a big dude and being a great baseball player are two different things. So I hope it clicks for him. Um, for me, I'm still not ready to give up on Cruz. Uh, I like Cruz because I didn't see a whole lot from him last year, but I liked the few things that I did see. I liked his plate discipline. Uh, I like his ability to switch hit. Um, I think those those traits can sometimes straighten themselves out over time. So uh, Cruz, he did struggle as a defensive player, which was was tough to watch. Um, but I, I still like him as an offensive profile. Again, we are really, really, it's easy to be hard on these guys because they literally just got assigned to high A without a, a lick of professional experience. And Cruz should have been a guy that started lower. But just with the way everything set up, you know, West Michigan was the spot. He should have started at a lower spot, and I, I think he probably would be with West Michigan at some point this season. But I like him. I think he's got enough juice to at least keep things interesting for a little bit longer. I think we only saw Cruz a, a, a couple times last year. He seemed like he was struggling with injury a lot during yeah, the season. Yeah, he messed up his shoulder like the first week of the season, and then he was just never the same. He even told me, he's just like, it's like, I don't feel normal swinging the bat. I don't feel comfortable swinging the bat, and that doesn't matter what side I'm on. He actually, he actually told me this. He said he was more comfortable as a right-handed hitter based on his shoulder situation, but he's not a dominant right-handed hitter. He's a dominant left-handed hitter. So imagine – that the only side you feel comfortable swinging from is your non-dominant side. Yeah, you're not going to hit the, that that particular season if you're set up like that from a physicality and from a from a from a health standpoint. Yeah, especially because I mean he played in the Constellation League that summer before the season and during the during 2020 when they didn't have the minor leagues. He came right out of college and played there. I think he played with Cody Clemens. I think I'm pretty sure it was on his team. So, yeah, he, he was going up against guys who were in double A, triple A. And I thought that, I, I thought that, you know, I'll be honest, I thought the high Michigan assignment was fine for him based off his experience, both the shoulder injury that has a new element to it. Because I, in terms of defense, you can even tell it's just, it, there's something didn't seem right, but I'm just an, you know, I'm just an amateur guy and calling it, you know, but it, I still think that there's a lot of potential there. Considering his range, he's very fluid in the, in the infield too as well one's an accident two's a trend three's a problem right so we're not going to hold trey cruz to the same expectations that we keep spencer torkelson to right so we're going to make sure that you know anybody who's you know different or, or i should say unique 
yeah, we might feel differently about what they need to do. You know, and Spencer Torkelson was, I think, over his first 30 with about 19 strikeouts. Uh, yeah, I- I'm sure there were some sweaty palms over there in Detroit. But, you know, again, still, you expect those guys to, to hit the ground running. And, and Cruz was was much more of a developmental side kind of guy. I mean, he wasn't. I mean, a good college player, don't get me wrong, but you can't expect that kind of production from guys who aren't elite players. So, yeah, I think if it happens again, then, yeah, then we start to change our expectations. Troy had another question in the chat room. Can we expect more signings after lockout? To answer the question, I I expect another pitcher. I expect a a lefty reliever. They really need another lefty reliever Mm -hmm. and or just some – well, maybe like a long relief too would be ideal, but uh, another oh, bat would be. Nope. Can I please get a good reliever? I would just like a <laughs> reliever. I don't really care what sign he throws. From. <laughs> look, I love that. By the way, AJ Hinch even said that like a couple weeks ago. He's just like, look, if I don't have a lefty in the bullpen, then so be it. I can find righties that get lefties out. So, I mean, give me a good pitcher over a certain side pitcher. I saw Andrew Chafin was a guy that they were linked to for a while. I like him, but. If they don't get anybody, it's okay. Like I, I, I don't worry about it as much. Like I, I, I used to worry about that stuff. Like, you know, what's the Tiger bullpen gonna do to crush our hopes and dreams, right? Like I, I don't worry about that as much with this particular group leading that 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 charge. So, you know, I think if they need something, they'll go find it. But I don't think it's gonna cost them an arm and a leg to do it. If I'm not mistaken, their 40-man roster is at 38 right now, which means that, yeah, they've got room to add two more players. But presumably when the lockout ends, spring training will come very quickly after that. And when spring training begins, you can put guys in the 60-day injured list. And the Tigers will put Jake Rogers on there and, and Spencer Turnbull. So, they, yeah, they can presumably add another three four guys if they want to. And I would expect them to add at least two. And Raj touching. I think it's going to be pitching for the most part. Possibly an outfielder if they get crazy. Yeah, I, I would like to get a veteran bat. Like Michael Conforio is another bat. Left-handed bat, I think, would be nice. But I don't know. Like the outfield, the, the one thing, Dan, I'll ask you about this, is the, the Tigers outfield situation. Riley Green, by the way, it was, it was the joke, of the, or it was a really funny comment that Kevin Goldstein said that kind of, I think you'll appreciate this in terms of prospect rankings. Him and Torkelson, one or two, does it matter? No, it doesn't. And so, but as far as Riley Green's concerned, whether it makes the team out of spring training or not, you look at an outfield situation, you have, you're the Grossman stand, so we understand that. You have Akil Baldu, who's expected to hopefully break out of that sophomore slump. But then after that, it just seems like with, Vic, you know, Victor Reyes is Victor Reyes, essentially a fourth outfielder. And, that, and that's fine. He's... He's good. He's a good player in terms of a good clubhouse guy. Nothing wrong with that. But do you think the Tigers need to get, get another outfielder, like a veteran outfielder, to kind of hold the position together? Because it's while Riley Green, we know, is going to be a good talent, there's no guarantee he's going to come out for 60 games and go fine. I don't know. You know, do, do the Tigers go ahead and add another veteran to the mix? Well, as much as I like Robbie Grossman, I mean, look, you, you have to know what – limitations look like right i mean you have to know that i mean he's 32 years old so you know while super helpful and very productive for what his skill set allows 
he's probably going to have a hard time being a part of this three, five, seven years from now. So, yeah, I mean, is he holding it down exceptionally well, in my opinion? Yes, especially for what he makes. So I think, yes, they're going to need at some point to hit the switch to, to get not, not just a veteran outfielder, but a good one. I mean, I, I don't bank on Akil Badu being a, a transcendent player. I, I, I'd love to see it, but again, I don't want to put these young players in positions where we have to expect that much from them. See Ryan Kreider. I want to put these kids into spots where if they hit, it's a, it's a huge bonus. It's house money because there's already an answer that's established, that's a bona fide producer at the major league level playing in front of them. And you know this as well as anybody. You don't finish the year with the team you go to opening day with. You never do. Look, Javi Baez is going to be a Tiger this year. But I would bet my house that Ryan Kreidler will also be a Tiger this year. There's no reason why he won't get an opportunity, whether that's playing second base, whether that's playing third base because one of those two players went down, or playing shortstop for whatever reason if Javi Baez isn't out there. So there's a scenario where you are leaning on young players, and the Tigers have themselves a spot where they have some good ones. So – no, I don't want to put it on Akil Badu that he has to be this, you know, Mark the Bird, Fidret style sensation for the next 10 years of his major league career. It's not fair. So, no, at some point, they're going to have to go get a premium player in the outfield to flank Riley Green. And then, honestly, if you want to throw a center fielder out there, let's say Riley's a center fielder, hypothetically. Then you go get a great bat for one of the corners or just somebody who can just really run it down. I'm fine either way, like a Kiermaier, somebody along those lines, right? So if you get something like that, you can win with that. But they're going to need a, a bona fide big bat because they're closer than they have been in a lot of years, right? The idea of Green and Torkelson and then I don't know, Scope, Candelario. I mean, but they're still maybe a bat or two away from having us go like, oh, man, <laughs> that's a good lineup. You know, even with Baez, like they're, they're getting closer, but they're not there yet. So I think they need a couple still to, to really make them go from being a playoff hopeful to being a team you wouldn't want to play in the playoffs. Works for me. Yeah, I can I can take that all day of the week. I mean, it's just I, I just when I see people say the fans like, well, they, they have these four outfielders, but it, it's a lot. It's not fair at all to expect the just those kind of performances because with even with like the base, even with we're gonna see different next year pitching coming back. And in terms of you have a long layoff here right now between the lockout season. So who knows what pitchers are going to be, what the pitchers are doing and they're off time right now. Last year, we saw some of the injuries as a result of that, but this year, I don't, Chris, I mean, let me ask you this real quick. Do you think, I mean, are baseball pitchers came back to kind of a normal, I guess, uh, off season regimen. And is that going to, that could make a difference too. Yeah. I, I assume that they're all pretty much back into the swing of things after last year. I mean, there's some, some, 
exceptions to that guys who were injured or missed time. But the one thing about pitching is you don't necessarily, you, you just need to find somebody who can catch the ball for you. You can get out there and throw and work up your arm strength and things like that. It's it's another thing as a hitter to be able to face legitimate pitching. I mean, I guess if you have a pitching machine, you're you're halfway there. But uh, yeah, it's I, I don't know. I I think hopefully we'll see fewer injuries this year. But it is, you know, you, you still are dealing with guys coming off maybe throwing fifty six innings two years ago and jumping up a fair amount last year. So there might be some residual effects. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's just it's it, it's interesting to see. Hopefully, this lockout ends soon, but who knows at this point? But uh, so, Dan, you're heading to Pittsburgh. What's the rest of your UAD schedule looking like in in terms of how the Titans are doing too? I mean, we talked about this a little bit before off air, but how's the rest of your February lining up? <laughs> you know, I, I do want to see. The, I mean, the rest of this year. So right now, we're in the middle of what I like to call the kidney stone of our season. So <laughs> right now we are just sitting here trying to, to pass it. Uh, it is, we are in the middle of a 12 day stretch where we are away for 10 of those days. So of the next two weeks, essentially we're, we're gone every single day. We've got a long road trip and that was the way that they were at the beginning of the year, but there was still revisits back to, to Michigan, back to Detroit, back to home, back to, you know, everybody's families and all that stuff. But uh, this time we don't get that chance. So right now this is being what they call in the thick of it. We're in the dog days of, uh, of, of snowy Michigan winter that lasts five months. So we need to, we, we, we were, we're at the tail end of the season. So after we get through this and we pass this kidney stone, we'll, we'll be all right. Things will get easier. So then comes a bunch of home games, then comes the conference tournament, and then anything happens and, and you just don't know. I mean, you could find yourself in the, in the NCAA tournament, hypothetically, which would, be, uh, which would be something that I really hope for them because th- they've got a young man there in Antoine Davis who's been there for four years. Talk about the, a white whale in college sports right now, right? A four-year basketball player that's excelled. So there's not many like him. He's he's really done a lot of good work and and he's been great for that university. I want nothing more than to see that work rewarded. <laughs> I'll just think about that. When you said that, then I go, wait, I also passed a gallbladder stone at your ballpark. Oh, that's right. Oh, good times, Roger. That's right. Oh man. There's nothing like baseball season. They really, really paint the picture there, guys. <laughs> really. I remember I was I was in the radio booth. I, I came out to the press box and I looked down and I saw this this chalk from where like somebody was laying on the floor and I was like, "What happened here?" And they're like, "Oh, Roger had a gallbladder situation. He's at the hospital now. We're not sure <laughs> if he's going to make it." <laughs> that's still, that's still that's thinking, uh, who was it? it? Was Adam Adam Wolf and some other pitcher? I've forgotten who it was. Uh, helped grab your stuff for me. To get to the to, as I chase down the ambulance like a sleazy lawyer. <laughs> Shout out to Adam Wolf, uh, you know PMP right there, PIMP. It was uh, just to do that, but uh, anyway, I just, I just, yeah. There's, I, I in terms of the minor league schedule, I know that's just just as brutal when you have those kind of stretches like that. But I think with the new schedule, how'd you enjoy that last year, real quick? Because I, I was curious to see spend that whole time 
five games out there. It seemed like that was a lot easier of a setup, but does or, or am I just yeah. imagine that? So I really think it's so important when you're going through something new or, or uncharted is to get as many different opinions about it. Because if I come out and say what I'd like to say, which is that these schedules are amazing. Uh, I think they're incredible. Um, that, that can, that can be disingenuous to other groups of people. Um, I can guarantee you that that is immensely difficult for ballpark employees. Um, if you're playing six days in a row, it's really hard to find people who can work six days in a row to do things like run a concession stand or run parking, for example, the little things that happen at a ballpark. I know firsthand having watched it last year that we had people who were, were wearing, you know, you know, white collars and ties into the office Monday through Friday, and they were pouring beer at seven Oh five. So it's a, it was very, very challenging in that way. So there are logistics that are extremely difficult. I hope that the, the, the gravity of the situation and the focus of a full off season has given us, us and everybody else for that matter, because I know this wasn't just a Whitecaps thing. This was all of baseball, giving them time to reformulate and to have a new strategy for what is needed in order to make it work. Now they know the demands. Now they know what's going to be necessary in order to to have that run more smoothly. So I, I from what I understand, they're they're all they're all set and they're all ready to go. Um, but uh if anybody needs a summer job, I can promise you they're they're looking. So uh but for me, no, I mean we we would go 20 to 30 days without an off day. I mean before this current setup, I mean we had you know 21, 25 day stretches with no off days in between. So to have one off day every single week and moreover, to have it on the same day, you can actually like pretend to be a human being once a week. It's 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 great. I mean, it's fun to actually have like a pulse of life, uh, a chance to to see your family. I mean, it's great. So yeah, I I love the setup. I think it's awesome. I think it gives everybody a chance to recalibrate and come back fresh. Yeah, yeah. Remember when Greg talked about that too, Chris? Like just having those. I felt like I had a life for the first time ever. Like he could playing stuff with his wife and everything. And yeah, that's just hearing that and just, but I didn't think about the, the concession thing. That's a great point to bring up Dan, because it's not off. I mean, it, it last year you can see across the board, no matter what job it was hard to fill. But I remember it felt like when I went to the games at Lansing and at, in Grand Rapids that some of the concessions stands, even in member, even Erie, Chris, some of the concession stands didn't were have, weren't open because they didn't have enough people. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you don't really appreciate uh, as you, you, you're a fan. You go there and you expect certain things, right? And and it's it's hard. I I, I guess we I didn't appreciate it either that, that the difficulty in staffing all that stuff. But I would also suggest that maybe Nate could do it because I don't know what else he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Nate would be thrilled. I'm sure he would much more love to. To, to help someone's nacho order rather than go call the third, fourth, and fifth inning. Shout it's out to Nate. Burger. We enjoy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, 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 yeah. He's he's good people. It's just uh, you could see him just with the the paper hat on, flipping his hat off, just running right back up to the booth and go from there. But uh, yeah, Dan. So 
anything scheduled out coming up for the road of Detroit podcast before we get out of here? Do you want to plug that? Cause fantastic podcast. And... Thanks. I appreciate that. So I, I don't, you know, with a major league lockout looming and the uncertainty as to whether or not we're going to play with major leaguers, at least for the time being, from everything I understand is that minor leaguers, and this can, this, this can go as high up as the Torkelson and Greens of the world, that they're set. We're, we're going to see those guys play on day one. Um, I think part of it is because even the high-end guys like those two haven't become 40-man rostered yet. So you can see anybody you're really dying to see you're going to be able to see on day one. So it's, it's kind of nice in that way from a Tigers fan's perspective. I know there's Javi Baez and Rodriguez and all these guys that they signed, but look, you, you still want to see what your future lineup's going to look like. So I think there's still plans for minor league games to happen down in Lakeland. Um, I don't know how this affects the road to Detroit podcast so much as it does just the Tigers in general. Um, but I'm hoping that for the first time the Tigers decide to pull the trigger on broadcasting some of the minor league games on the backfields. If we don't have major league games, please, yeah. I mean, yeah, please show me, show me Torkelson and Green, show me Dingler, show me, you know, Cabrera and Meadows and these guys. Because if I don't have anything, at least I have that. Like, at least I have something to watch. In in late February, early March, that's the one thing I want to see. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, truthfully, when I watch Major League Spring Training games, I'm just waiting for when the prospects get into those games. So that's, that's a big thing for me. So I, I know that they have had some discussions about it, um, you know, whether it's Major League games that – are not on Bally or if they're minor league games from backfields, I think that would be very interesting. And I think there's an appetite for it. Yeah, trust me. It's it's one of those things where I think it was in low A only was it the Pirates affiliate, Chris? That was the only one that had inside and all that division. That was it. And then occasionally I see um the Blue Jays affiliate have that weird feed where it looks like it's something out of high school. That from like the it's 90s. just his dad with a camera. Yeah, just like some sort of weird, like it looked really weird. And trust me, anything Lakeland would be. It's Vladimir Guerrero Sr. <laughs> I just, I, I, I know that Sherry, who listens to us online, Dunedin. Okay, because I was going to say something else and I, I remember her yelling, it's Dunedin. How do you not know it's Dunedin? I'm not from Florida. Anyway. You know, you know, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, the Lansing Lugnuts radio broadcaster, was with the Blue Jays before they became an A's affiliate for many years. And the way he made me remember it, because I'm very much like a memory, sensory kind of give me a word that I can line up to it, kind of like uh, Michael Scott, my friend Pat took a turn, Pat turn. Um, he said that uh, when you finish your Thanksgiving dinner, you are Dunedin. That works for oh, me. I, I always have those uh, yeah. little mnemonic devices, I believe they're called. But uh, that's yeah. right. So, but to your point, Dan, I I was like, the Tigers are in kind of a unique uh, spot here. I was just looking at their prospect rankings on Fangraphs, and 
only one of their top 15 prospects to fan graphs is actually on the 40 man roster. So they've got all these, all their top prospects are still available to play baseball. And I, I just wrote an article tonight uh, in, about there's like this small group of guys who are kind of screwed by this lockout and they're not the veterans like Baez and Grossman and they're not the prospects like Green and Torkelson. They're the guys like Cody Clemens who just got added to the 40 man roster and Joey Wentz and Alex Fiedo and Daz Cameron and Derek Hill, even these young big leaguers who are missing out on another spring training and, and technically can't be with the Tigers coaching staff and development staff at all. And so However long this goes, they, they're missing out on real opportunities to prove themselves to be big leaguers. And it's a it's a bummer for those guys. And think about it about a year, maybe maybe two years ago now. I want to say just a year ago, but didn't the Tigers start the season with Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal already having made their major league debuts, but still holding their prospect status? So we we still saw prospects who were on the 40 man. And, and so, thankfully, we're not in a situation last year like we are this year. At least, I mean, look, I, there's going to be winners and losers and, and people who have to figure it out. But, you know, I, I know how hard you have to work to get to that level. So, I, I can guarantee you that the, the work continues to get put in. It doesn't fall off. I mean, it's... It's something that analytics has a really hard time quantifying its work ethic. And, you know, it doesn't matter what your exit below is if you don't care. I mean, you, anybody can show that they can hit the tar out of a baseball, but, you know, if, if they, they, they don't make the team bus and they're always 10 minutes late or, you know, they're, they're rolling out to batting practice, you know, by the time group B's done and, and they haven't shagged anything. Like, it's just little stuff like that. But, like, you have to put the work in. And, like, I, I it sounds so old school baseball. Like, it almost makes me nauseous even saying it. But, like, it is the unquantifiable thing that we need and that teams need to now do their homework on more than anything. Because now we have all the numbers available to us, right? So now – What's equivalent to a background check is almost just as important as anything else. Yeah, especially because it might be coming up even in the labor discussions too. They talked about using some sort of baseball set. They're talking about F war at one point. Even was it a combination of both, Chris? They were talking about. Uh, yeah, using analytics to to judge players and stuff, though. But yeah, no, I think Dan, you're absolutely right. It's the sort of thing that, as fans and as everything leans toward analytics, it it kind of forgets the stuff that we can't ever know as as fans and even as, as people who aren't there in the locker room, how the importance of having good leadership, the importance of having guys who keep the clubhouse loose or know when to, you know, really push a guy or know how to get a guy to perform. It's it's a huge thing. And and yeah, it's not great if you got a player whose top exit velocity is leaving the clubhouse after the game, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, look, that's why Don Kelly was a major leaguer for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's because, you know, when you hear about the guy on the team that everybody loves and everybody pulls for, there's a reason for that. It's not just because he found a click in the locker room and he's, he won over the most important players on the team. It's like, no, like top down, this guy is is a hero in that room and for whatever reason or another he just has everybody in his corner and it's why i think don kelly will be a major league manager at some point before it's all said and done so 
Dan, we don't know, we normally do this for our guests, but because you have, you know, you're probably in the five or six time range guest, we're going to play you off. Do I get a five timers club jacket? Yes. I, I'm actually uh, stitching it now, but we're actually playing you off a little bit of um, one of the songs off your favorite album. One of my favorite Queen songs of all time that, for whatever reason, can, can Classic Rock do me a favor? Can you play something else other than Champions of the... Hold on, sorry. I send upon you the skies. Can anybody in Class of Rock do me a favor and not play We Will Rock You, We Are Champions? Queen has such a back catalog of music. I don't get it. I know that, look, I know radio is something where they. they You'll send ratings and market and blah blah blah. I know how the radio works behind behind a sauce or how they make the sausage radio. But good God, man, how's this song not getting replayed? You know, I think it was on XM Radio uh, about six months ago. They did a Queen channel for like a month, and they had guest hosts come in. And I learned because that's all I listened to for that entire month was that there you go was that they the Foo Fighters are like queen stands. Like they have arguments about it on tour, like about the best like back catalog songs. So yeah, I mean, they, they, they took like an hour and they played all like the, the back channel ones. That was, that was it. But one thing I loved and Taylor Hawkins is their drummer. He's the one with the blonde hair. Who's always yeah. just, you know, just it's flailing everywhere. Must be nice to have long hair at that age. So <laughs> he he said, and I agree with him. He said, the thing about Queen is that they were always swinging for a home run. And not every band is risky enough to do that. Because, I mean, look, you're, you're filling out a CD or, or a record with 10, 12, 14 songs. You don't want to go into that thinking that, you know, these ones probably won't be hits. Like, no, like these guys, like every single thing that they put down, like they thought like, you know, heck, even the songs they didn't even like became number one hits. Like they didn't even like another one bites the dust. Like the, the drummer thought that song was garbage. And Michael Jackson saw them in concert at the LA forum and pulled them aside after the show. And he's just like, Hey, you've got to put this song out as a single. Like, if you don't, you're going to miss a huge opportunity. And so they, like, went kicking and screaming, and they're like, fine, we'll put it out. And it literally became their highest-selling song of all time. I did not know that, really. I didn't. I had no idea that. Wow. We could do another hour on this topic alone. Yeah, because, I mean, look, even the stuff, like, a kind of magic from 1986 is under, classically underrated to me. The Flash Gordon soundtrack, don't even start it on. You know what? No. You know what? Screw it. We're going to end you with this song. This is the way we're going to end out because this is... Double walkout song. Yeah. Where is... Oh, no, no. This is the way we try to think. Let me just fast forward this a little bit. Though. You got your walk-up music and your walk-off music. There you go. Come on, how cool is this? Seriously. I mean, the movie was terrible, but this soundtrack was better than the movie. I mean, God, the movie had Timothy Dalton in it, though, by the way, early on in his career. For those of you kids who don't know what a soundtrack is, there was a time <laughs> where a band would actually make all the music for a particular movie, and it would just be that one band or that one singer, and they would just sing the entire movie. 
I think that I think that died with uh, with what the bodyguard basically. I don't think we uh, I don't think we saw any more like like one person centric soundtracks. Yeah, after that was like the sing- like you saw um, movies like singles or um, trying to think of like because that was a combination of the Seattle sound and everything. That's what in that whole you're, you're absolutely right. After, that was probably that's probably the last one I could think of. Another but, yeah. really terrible movie that Queen was involved in was Highlander. That was oh. back in the eighties. You remember that? I like the Highlander. Look, I'm, I'm a geek. I, look, I like I mean, the Highlander too. Yeah, I mean, Sean Connery does. I mean, Sean, Con- Sean Connery playing a Spaniard is one of the funniest things on God's green earth. But I mean, Christopher or Christopher Lambert. <laughs> I'm the one. Like Christopher Lambert, who ended up playing Raiden in Mortal Kombat, is such a really bad actor. But <laughs> I don't they know. Did, uh, they, they did a song for that movie too. Uh, who, who wants, wants to, to live, live forever? forever? Yeah, yeah, that's a great song. Great song. Yeah. And and see. So like one time I was asked, I think it was it was my, my dad actually asked me, he was like, so why do you like this band so much? And I was like, you know how Shohei Otani can pitch and hit? Well, imagine if Shohei Otani was also like the LeBron James of basketball and the Connor McDavid of hockey. Like no matter what his genre, he was succeeding in it. So that that's why I, I I equate them to a guy like like in your high school who literally could play every single sport and do it really really well like it didn't matter what it was so for me like they are the the genreless band like there's there's nothing that they haven't been able to do well yeah the fact that they were able to transition the eighties a hard feat the who couldn't do it I mean who's net I mean who's I'm trying to think of the first Who album after Keith Moon passed away. It was pretty much it after that. I mean, Pete Townsend, his own school career, Led Zeppelin, same thing, John, ba- John Botham passed away. They stopped making music. Not a lot of bands transition <clears throat> into the 80s as successfully as Queen did. You can argue about the song, cho- the shows, and all that stuff, but I like the fact that they went in a different direction and kind of reinvented themselves. I know I, more- I love their attitude now, too. Yeah. Because obviously they, they've been without their front man in Freddie Mercury longer than they were with him. So they've actually been as together as a band more without him now than with him. So, but, but their, their disposition, just their general attitude. Like I've, I've heard in interviews, like I've heard the drummer Roger Taylor just be like, Hey, like people like to give us a hard time and, and say that Adam Lambert sucks. And, and, and it's like, you know what? Uh, and he's, this is his words. He'd be like, okay, well then please don't show up. Please don't come to the concert. Like, I, I love the fact that he just doesn't care about money and profits. And he's just like, you know what, if, if that's how you feel, just don't show up because look, I mean, he's not here, but we can still play this and we can do it well enough. And we're going to celebrate the stuff that we did. They're not out there trying to make new stuff. And I appreciate that. Like they did enough stuff during their heyday to not need anything new. And the fact that they're just kind of very like, I don't want to say like it's pompous, but it kind of is like, it's that like, like smart, arrogant to this point where like, Hey, I know that I'm good at this. I know that we did an unbelievable job at this. So it's, it's your problem if you don't show up. I mean, it, look, I mean, you're not going to argue with Brian May, who... Brian May, the godfather. Yeah. He, he, oh, you know what? It's crazy. I'm going to be an astrophysicist. And you know what? Guess what? It's crazy. Astrophysicist, like, Dr. Brian May. Yeah, that's Dr. Right. Brian May. Also, you know what? I made my own guitar when I was a kid. I made my own guitar. Sorry, Chris. I know we lost you at this because <laughs> I'll feel bad because... 
So, so get this, Chris. So he made his own guitar, and he doesn't even use a pick. He actually uses a coin to play it. He doesn't even use a guitar pick. He actually uses a sixpence. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he, I mean, he's the guitarist that all the other guitarists look up to. And I always think it's cool. Like, you ever go to a restaurant, and you just, like, look at the menu, and you're like, I don't know, what are the waiters like? And you just ask the waiter, and they tell you. Like, that's the kind of recommendation I like is, like, if I look at a room full of guitarists, I'm like, hey, who's the best one in here? And they all just point to Brian May. Like, that's what I feel like happens. So for me, you know, that was why I always liked them was because they had a lead vocalist who had the equivalent of a 110 mile an hour fastball. And they had a guitarist who was arguably the best at the time that they came out. So, I mean, the drummer is fine and the, the bassist, you can take it or leave it. But they had two huge A-plus talents in that group. And, and to me, I love watching great talent. I mean, we watch young talent come through minor league baseball over and over and over. So for me, I like what looks like an amazing skill set. And that's why I've always liked those guys. Yeah, you've got you got yourself a Verlander and a Scherzer, and then oh, by the way, you've got a Fisher and a Sanchez. Uh, no, what the, the funny thing? So I think I, I think I first became uh, aware of Queen because of another one bites the dust, which I believe was the walk-in music for a wrestler in the WWF back then. It was either Coco Beware or the Junkyard Dog. Ooh, I don't remember. I think it might it was, be Junkyard Dog. I think. Uh, but also, you know, that, that Flash Gordon theme you were playing, that was, uh, that's the beginning of Terminator X to the Edge of Panic. Uh, oh, yeah. The song on Public Enemies, uh, Takes a Nation of Millions to, to Hold Us Back. So Queen was transcending genres with, uh, with yeah, I mean, you know. But no, unfortunately, it was, it was Junkyard Dog, by the way. Thank you. Yes. But, and, you know, and also, I mean, that was the only band that's had four members write a number one hit. I mean, all four members, even even the bassist, who, who he did another one bites of dust. So, yeah, I mean, every it wasn't like one guy was coming up with everything and the other guys were just kind of there. Like, they all had a say and they all did something, it, which is one of the reasons that they were just so different. So, well, that was funny. We've gone through four Queen songs the entire time. I love it. I love it. I, you know what, Dan? I honestly, I had I known, I feel like we've... Uh, Gone, cl- drawn closer to each other than knowing full well that we know as much as about Queen. Because usually I talk about indie bands and all that, but Queen was a big, big influence, huge in Spain. My, my, like my, my mom and my entire uncles. Mm. It's like there's literally you go in my uncle's old apartment in Madrid. There's literally like every Queen record, every single you can think of. He had like a Queen mini room. And I remember going there, and he had the, like the headphones I have on right now. If you're watching us on YouTube. And he would have like this record player and it was just like his, he had the whole experience. And the first record I listened to was play the game. That was the one I got into before. Um, Cause I always thought that queen was just those, those, those hits. That was it. And then when I started re- realizing that it's just a lot of back catalog, even baby driver, a lot of a song that I even think of uh, Brighton rock, which is, that's a fat he, and even the creator of that movie said he would have not made, it would not have been possible in that movie had that song not existed. Mm. Mm. That's a fun, well, that's a fun fact. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he, he also did, I mean, he kind of got the germ for that movie from the, uh, what was the zombie movie he made? Uh, shoot. The director, is it Edgar Wright? I think it is. Yeah, Edgar, yeah, Edgar Wright. Yeah. 
um, what is it? The, the zombie 20, movie. 20, 28 days later. No, it's a, a zombie comedy. Oh, um, there's a scene where they're beating Shaun of, Shaun, Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, they're beating yeah. zombies to a Queen song on the, in the jukebox, and it's all yeah. they're hitting them in tune with the song. Like that was yeah, the right. I think the beginning of that that whole movie. So you seen that, Dan? I, I have, so I have not, and now I have to put it on my list. So I yeah. appreciate this. Um, I will tell you this. So I, so my wife and I, we went on a European vacation uh, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic. And uh, one of the stops that I was able to convince uh, her to make and to have her come along with was to go to Montreux, Switzerland. And for, for huge, huge fans of that band, they will know that there is a casino in Montreux, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. There is a casino that had a recording studio in it. They worked there and they bought the studio because they liked it so much. They liked the city so much. Um, they actually went on a, a, a drunken bender with David Bowie one night, and it's actually that bender that produced the song Under Pressure in that studio. So that studio is still preserved, and it is now a shrine. It is an experience. Oh, there you go. And we went to this place. We spent a day here. That's the studio that they recorded their last albums in. And there's a spot in that room that you just saw that actually indicates where Freddie Mercury was the last time he ever sang. And it, it, it's that gold plaque right there. So it's on the floor there. Uh, if you go to that, there it is. So, so yeah, but that's the exact room that they were in. And it's, it's just an outstanding. For anybody who's really, really into it, yeah, you, you need to do yourself a favor and make the pilgrimage because it is worth every bit, every very moment of that. Can I tell you a quick story? And I, and I know we're like totally like diverging here. But uh, about two weeks ago, my wife and I went to go see the uh, go see a movie. We went to go see Scream, and so we're we're in line, and she makes the comment to me. She's like, "Yeah, so I, I'm. I mean, so this is like a, like a comedy horror movie." And my first, like, I didn't think anything of it, but then like I came back to it a few minutes later, and I was like, "What the hell's funny about Scream? Like, like what is?" What's a comedy aspect of this film? And so then once the movie starts, like, you know, spoiler alert. So once Scream starts, like, somebody gets gutted within the first, like, five minutes, right? And my wife leans over to me and very quietly goes, I thought this was scary movie. so so anyways for the remainder of the two hours of that movie when anybody was graphically killed i would just lean over into her and i'd just be like hilarious (laughs) (laughs) oh man (laughs) yeah it was funny i i kind of viewed actually scream as a little bit of a comedy too, because, but it was mostly just because it was self-referential and, you know, meta, but it, it's definitely not like scary movie, which is like a naked gun style comedy. <laughs> no, nobody's going to confuse it for, for airplane. Anytime soon. <laughs> oh yeah. And I always forget that 
Dave Arquette was a thing for a minute because he got big from that movie. Yeah, kind of super weird that David yeah. Arquette and his ex-wife Courtney Cox are playing opposite one another in this film. Yeah, and uh, then he almost died in a ring. To, you know, the people who uh, get along, the, the the civil folks out there. <laughs> so on that note, if you have watched, if you're listening to us on the podcast, um, I know there was a part there where the video part. So we'll we'll add the video component because one of the things that I've learned in doing a podcast is that if you're watching a video, it's taboo to watch a video during a podcast because no one knows what's going on so that being said we'll put the link in the youtube so everybody can stop bitching or it's just i've also listened to a, a podcast so to talk about that so anyway that being said dan thanks so much hopefully you pass your kidney stone <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. the, the, the metaphorical kidney metaphorical, stone. metaphorical yes. yeah metaphorical and of course the road of the detroit podcast you can find past episodes and you and nate Nate's gonna be back in on behind the producer's chair. I'm assuming that's the plan. Awesome, and uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to meet up in the ballpark sooner or later. And and hopefully this, if you're in this neck of the woods, man, love to get some lunch sometime. And not like no Hollywood cliche, but actually sit down and grab some food, man. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm. I mean, the only thing that would would stop me is the fact that I would probably be knowing what I know now would probably have lunch and then be there long enough to have dinner. So, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that, we can look, I mean, we that's can on the table. So if we're going to do it, let's carve out some time. Yeah. You know, definitely. That's the I mean, Korea, right. Uh, uh, folks, oh. we're actually closing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. And again, everybody go to strive to road of Detroit podcast. If you listen to us, of course, and put in content to go around at motorstatebangles.com. We'll be back on Wednesday. We got, Three episodes this week because I'll be in Chicago next week. Francis Romeo, who is a Cuban baseball writer, writes a ton about the baseball prospects, will be our guest Wednesday. So I'm I'm stoked for that because it's just this will be the first time kind of branching out with the Tigers. And he wrote a book in Spanish that um, I'll be discussing. We'll be discussing with him a little bit, but the, especially with the international draft being a thing next year. But anything you want to know about Cuban prospects, Romeo is the man. He is he's a guy who. I'm a big fan of his work, so we'll look forward to that. Until then, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Dan. You're the best. Boom. And Johnny Valenti.